Our reading this evening is from Luke chapter 22. A dispute also arose among the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. And he said to them, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, It is enough. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray, that you may not enter into temptation. O Lord, have mercy on us. Thanks be to God. In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But now, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And being in agony... He prayed more earnestly. That is, he stretched himself out more earnestly towards his Father in heaven. He stretched out his hands and his voice and his soul and pleaded with his Father. Because he was in agony. That's why he prayed the more earnestly. But agony is not what you think it is. It's probably not the best word for it, for what he was experiencing The word agony in English comes from a Greek word that actually describes what goes on at the Olympic Games when a runner runs a race or when a wrestler is competing with an opponent 
They are in agony. Not the kind of agony that you and I so often think of, the kind of misery that might lead us to complain or grumble, the kinds of things that make us uncomfortable or unhappy in this life. Our own flesh crying out against the burden of sin, the curses of sin, wishing and hoping that things were better, thinking that we deserve better. It's not that kind of agony. But it's the agony of a contest, of a wrestling match, of a fight. That's the kind of agony that Jesus experienced because he was struggling. He was struggling in two ways, struggling really with two opponents. He was struggling with the devil, who since his experience in the wilderness had been scheming and devising a way to tempt Jesus. To tempt Jesus not to do what his father sent him to do, to tempt him to give up the task, to give up the suffering, not to go to the cross. The devil wanted that above all else. If he could stop Jesus, then he would have all of us. And so Jesus was engaged in this struggle, this contest, this agony against the devil. The devil who had just entered into Judas to betray Jesus. The devil who had sought to sift Peter like wheat. That same devil, that same accuser, the adversary, was after Jesus. And so Jesus was struggling against him. But he was not struggling against him as two wrestlers who are in the same weight class might struggle against each other. There's no contest between Jesus and the devil. There's no contest. It's an agony that will lead to victory for Jesus. No doubt about it. The devil is a fool for thinking that he can fight against Jesus, for thinking that he can tempt the very Son of God. Nevertheless, he tries, and so it is a real agony. His sweat dropping to the ground like great drops of blood. His agony leading him to pray all the more earnestly, to stretch himself out towards his Father in heaven. But there's another struggle going on, another combat, and that is between Jesus and his own Heavenly Father. It's the kind of contest that was experienced, for instance, when Jacob was met by the angel or the Lord himself at the ford of the river Jabbok. God appeared to Jacob and wrestled with him until the breaking of the day, touching the socket of his hip to put it out of joint so that he could defeat Jacob finally at last, because what God wanted above all from Jacob was that Jacob would hold on to him and not let go. That Jacob would demand a blessing, which he did. That he would trust in the promises of God. That he would believe that even when God seemed to oppose him, God was in fact for him. The same kind of contest, the same kind of agony that you heard about in church a few weeks ago as Jesus himself confronted the Canaanite woman who was in agony because her daughter was demon-possessed. And when she asked Jesus to heal her daughter, Jesus was silent, and then he refused, and then he called her a dog. She was in agony, struggling with God. Not struggling against God, but struggling for God's promises, for his blessing, for him to deliver what he had said he would deliver. It is that same agony that Jesus experiences now as he looks forward and sees the cross ahead of him. Something that he has seen with perfect clarity from the beginning. There's no surprises here for Jesus. He knew what was coming for him. He knew it perfectly from the beginning, and yet that did not stop him. 
I did not delay him or make him hesitate or waver. And even now when he prays, Father, if you are willing, let this cup pass from me, it's not because he's afraid or because he does not want to do it, but because it's dreadful, because it's the worst thing imaginable, because if there were another way, it would certainly be better. And yet he prays, not my will, but yours be done. In the struggle with God, in his agony with God, he resolves it in perfect faith. Not my will, but yours be done. He believes his heavenly Father that whatever lies ahead of him, having nails pierced through his hands and his feet, having his side pierced with a spear, having a a crown of thorns pressed into his head, being mocked and ridiculed and abused and abandoned by everyone he loves, even then he believes that his Father's will is best. But his Father's will is best and, in fact, good. Not for him only, but for you as well. And so, being in agony, Jesus prayed all the more earnestly. He pleaded with his Father for help. Because, of course, the people that he was with were of no help whatsoever. Although he commends them, the disciples, for having stayed with him in his trials, nonetheless, you can see how worthless they were in this moment. As they're arguing about who is the greatest among them, they have just come from the Last Supper. They've just come from Jesus giving them his body and blood, from Jesus kneeling before them and washing their feet. And now, the only thing they can think of to do is ask, which one of us is best? Which one of us is the best disciple? They're of no help to Jesus when it comes to encouraging him to serve and to be humble and to be least of all. Even Peter whose zeal is something to be grateful for, whose zeal is something to be admired, even Peter overshoots. Lord, I'm willing to go with you to prison and even to death. That idea was over with quickly. Before the rooster crowed, he had denied Jesus three times, just trying to save his skin. Because somebody had recognized him, a maiden, a young girl, recognized his accent. He was so terrified. Not of much help to Jesus right now, of no comfort to him. He has no words to give Jesus. What use is it to Jesus if Peter goes to the cross with him? That's not what Jesus needs. What Jesus needs is the assurance that his Father loves him. He does not need swords either, although Jesus gives the disciples some instructions now. There's time coming when they'd have to defend themselves. Jesus doesn't need their swords. They say to him, here are two swords, and when he says, that's enough, it's almost like when a parent says to a kid, okay, that's enough, all right? I don't need your swords. What good are those swords going to do For me, the battle that he's waging, the combat and the agony is not waged with might and violence, but in humility and suffering and death and by faith, by trusting in his heavenly father. Something that the disciples struggle with the whole time. Not surprisingly, they are made of the same stuff as you and me, frail human flesh, which is why they need Jesus not just to make a sacrifice for their sins, but also to give them his faith to replace their weak and tiny faith with his own, to take their faith, which may be the size of a mustard seed, and turn it into a full-grown plant that can bear fruit. That's what they need. They need him to pray for them, lest they fall into temptation. They cannot even pray for themselves in the garden, much less comfort Jesus. God knows that. His heavenly Father, Jesus' heavenly Father, knows that, and so he sends an angel to help Jesus. It's a quick verse there, this angel appearing. But think about what angels do. 
throughout the Bible, throughout the Gospel of Luke. They appear to people who have been called by God for a specific purpose. And the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. The angels come with words of comfort. Of course, angels might look terrifying themselves. They might frighten by their appearance. But their bigger comfort there, their greater comfort, do not be afraid, is do not be afraid of anything, for God is for you and not against you. He is with you and on your side. Angels come to strengthen and give help. The angels came to Jesus as he was tempted in the wilderness by the devil. They came to strengthen him. Not to give him food to fill his belly. That's not what he needed. He could make food for himself. But to give him words of promise. To remind him of God's promises. To speak the word that gives life. That's what the angels came to do. Fear not. I'm sure they said to him, Fear not, for you have your father's good pleasure. Remember what he said to you. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so God strengthened his son to engage in the combat, the agony that was before him, the combat and bitter agony of going to the cross and suffering what seemed to him to be the worst thing imaginable and and in fact was, being treated by his father like the worst sinner in the world. Nonetheless, something that would make you and me squirm and lose faith in an instant, if God regarded us as the worst sinner in the world, taking to us to task for everyone else's sins, the sins that we have never even thought of committing, if that was us, we would have abandoned the faith long ago, but not Jesus. And in fact, he prayers, prays this most earnest and pure prayer of faith. Father, not my will, but yours be done. And so it is that his Father's will is done. Jesus is handed over to sinners, betrayed with a kiss, taken to court and ridiculed. False witnesses are brought against him. His reputation is destroyed, and there he hangs with two criminals. He must hang with the criminals that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And in doing all of that, in seeming to our eyes to lose the combat, to fail in the contest, and to be in agony unto eternal death, there Jesus suffers and is glorified. Because his glory is to save you. His glory is to suffer for you. To take your sins upon himself, to pray for you, to bear your burdens, to take his life, to take his life and to give it to you. To take his sonship, his favor from the Heavenly Father, and to give it to you. To draw you close to him, So that nothing can hurt you. Not the devil, not your own sinful flesh, not people, not death itself, not even hell. Not even hell can hurt you because you belong to him. In the next week and a half, we have the great and incredible privilege. It's really unbelievable that this privilege is ours. To watch Jesus as he goes to the cross for us. Who are we that we should get to see God in such glory? we should get to gaze upon the Son of God as he does such great works for us. Set your hearts over the next week and a half to think about Jesus in his agony. Not to feel bad for him. Not to be miserable. Not to empathize with him, but to be grateful. That he undertook all of that for you. And learn from him. Learn from his blessings to you. Learn how to trust in your Heavenly Father. Jesus trusted in him and was not put to shame. Do the same, and you will never be put to shame. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.
Amen.